Thanks for joining the podcast with Tamara Gondor. Conversations with everyday innovators that reject status quo, think differently, and make a positive difference in their world. Listen in so you can ignite innovation, influence others, and make an impact too. And now your host, CrossFit addict, knee-high sock lover, and according to her kids, average cook, Tamara Gondor. Good morning, afternoon, evening, and for some of you, middle of the night. Hello, all you everyday innovators across the globe. We are back for another week of incredible interviews with everyday innovators. So what's that? Well, that's people like you and me who found a creative way to solve a problem, who are bucking the status quo, who have driven innovation, big and small in their worlds. We interview everyone from CEOs to leadership, to administrative assistant, to aspiring leaders, to entrepreneurs, to consultants to stay-at-home mom and dads. It's so cool. But what I think what's important about all of them, the common thread between all these interviews is that drive to innovate and think differently, to go a little bit further, a little bit faster. And today is no exception. Richard, welcome to the show. Tell the world a little bit about who you are and the world that you're in. Yes, I'm Richard Gettner, and I'm an expert in consumer packaged goods, grocery, e-commerce. And I started my own fractional advisor business. And I'll get into that a little bit. What does that mean? But I got here by working at a few food companies. Most of my career was spent at General Mills, which is where we met. All those years ago. All those years ago, yes. And I had various roles in consumer insights, shopper insights, and e-commerce, where I led capability development for um, the company. I want to ask you a quick question, Richard, about yeah. e-commerce, because correct me if I'm wrong, but when you started doing that, it, it was still this like, where's it headed? What's it doing? Do we want to invest in this? Is that, is that right? Yeah, um, yeah, it was, it was going on, but it was still really small and it was a very small portion of the business, but it was something that we knew that we needed to get into and get into more. So you've written the e-commerce wave from the beginning of it to now. I mean, you're still on the wave, really. Right. I'm I'm just curious, when you think about e-commerce as a category, and I don't know necessarily about the specific tactics, but just kind of high level, how that innovation has changed or driven business, because that is, especially in 2020, where it accelerated, I think e-commerce overall just has been a game changer for for the world, really. Mm -hmm. It continues to change. Um, and just when you think you have it figured out, something happens. <laughs> Is that why you like it though? <laughs> uh, well, truthfully, yes, <laughs> because every quarter there was something going on, either an internal restructuring or change or something external where new, new company pops up or somebody bought somebody else. So, well, I, it's interesting to me, Richard, because I'm just going to jump in real quick because, uh, cause you lit up when you're like, yeah, it changes all the time. Uh, your everyday innovator style is fluid imaginative and fluid is very, I think it's only 3% of people get fluid in their power triggers. It's one of the rare ones. And, and they're all very important. They're all equally important, but they have different weights in terms of numbers of people. Right. But what's interesting about the fluid and imaginative. So imaginative is all about playing in the gaps, novel, what doesn't exist, right? You want to create the space, but the fluid is all about taking ambiguity and turning it into innovation. So it's all about like looking at that things that people look at messy, sticky, like fog, you know, on a boat kind of yep. what comes to my yep. mind and being like, oh, let me pluck out the ideas in there that are going to move us forward. And that's kind of, I guess, how I think of you when you're saying that. 
yes, I love ambiguity. I've always functioned best and operated best in the gray areas. I never sought jobs that I operated in a box. So this is a random side question, but what you said is really interesting. What advice do you have for people out there? Because I think you're so good at navigating ambiguity, but there's a lot, I think there's a lot of us who have to navigate it, but maybe that's not our strong point. We can do it, but it's not our strong point. What advice do you have for them and helping them navigate the thing that you love so much? Uh, A couple of things. One, find somebody who is more comfortable in the ambiguity. Yeah. Um, But what I learned working with you was trust the process. So if you have a good plan and you have a good process, you'll you'll have a successful outcome no matter what obstacles come your way. I like that. And it's it it is hard to take a deep breath sometimes and just know that like you're on the path, you're getting it done. It may not be obvious yet, but you're getting it done. Right. Um yep. I'm gonna flip it for a second. I got us off on a little tangent there, but your comments about ambiguity, I was like, oh, we got to, we gotta dig into ambiguity. Um, what challenges or what big challenge have you faced and how have you overcome it? Um, my biggest challenge has always been around relationships because my, my natural tendency and probably honed by so many years in consumer research is to identify obstacles so we can figure out how to overcome them. But this is often perceived as trashing their idea. And it's, it really um, happens when the people suggesting the idea have an underlying insecurity. You know, so so they're emotionally attached to the idea instead of separating, I, here's the person and he, he, here's an idea, let's make it better. Okay, so what I love about this conversation, Richard, we're going to dig in on this on this point here, is oftentimes what I hear people say is, I get frustrated by the people or don't listen to the naysayers and I always, or the yes butters. And I actually always feel like, well, no, 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 those are the people that actually see the things we don't see. We just have to figure out how, how to help them, right? How to help them go to get to solution mode. But what I hear you saying is, I'm actually in solution mode. I just want to make sure we get those obstacles you know, figured out. How do, how do you then help that person who's emotionally attached because nobody wants their baby to be called ugly? How do you help that person get over that hurdle of listening to you and realizing that you're actually trying to help them versus, you know, put up some brick walls that they don't want to see. I, I really wish I could say that I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realized that that situation way too late in my career. And I really wish that the resources that are available now and like even five years ago were available 20 years ago. I might not have changed my approach because I'm more about efficiency and practicality, but at least I would have understood it. The re- reading through the the different triggers, um, it really made me wish that I had that inquisitive one, mm-hmm. because there are people who are masters at asking questions to get people to go in the direction that you want them to go. And when it's done, the person ends up thinking that it was their idea. Yeah. And I went, that is, that is so wonderful. That made me think that that question of, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Yeah. I now think 
that's what it would be <laughs> to be right. to be naturally inquisitive because <laughs> I think that well, would help. But your your point is a really interesting one, and there are everyday innovators out there with the inquisitive one of their power triggers and. Uh, one of you, I think you nailed it. One of the things they're really good at is asking people questions that help them form their thinking or think differently or push their thinking along. Um, and the rest of us have to figure out how to navigate around because we don't do that. We're more trying to push our ideas onto people. That's my problem. I'm a risk taker experiential, so I want to push it onto people. So I have to like learn to back <laughs> that up. That does not come you know? as a surprise. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm like, no, this is how we should do it. So, and I tend to talk very declarative in a very declarative tone. So it's like, even my questions don't sound like questions. People joke about my team jokes about that all the time. But, um, but, but what you're saying is really important though, which is if we're on the other end of that and people like Richard who are bring that fluid imaginative to the table and bring that ability to, to see through the ambiguity and see those obstacles, that's a huge benefit to the person with the idea. So I think those of us on the other side of the table have to realize the intent coming and saying, okay, Richard or whomever sharing this obstacle with me is really going to help. And I have to imagine in your illustrious career that you have helped your team and your clients really see obstacles that would have actually been a major problem had they not seen them. Mm-hmm. Yes. They, so let's yeah, yeah and, and the ones that, that realize that. Um, we, we had a really good partnership. Um, that <laughs> I got feedback um, one time that a director that I was working with, the complaint to my director was that I always had to be right. And she paused and she asked, well, is he? And her response was, Yes, <laughs> you know, but it was like, but but that's but, not but, the but point. exactly, that's so not the point. <laughs> but what a great, I mean, if I'm hearing you right, what a great insight into communication style. Of like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I need to figure out how to present obstacles and these things I'm seeing to people in a way that doesn't that doesn't send up their guard. Yep, you know, and, and that that was probably my has been my flaw throughout my career is that that that's just a a blind spot for me. I, I, I do it and I just haven't put enough work into overcoming that. You know, I, I have to thank you for sharing that Richard, because I think that there's probably a lot of everyday innovators listening who are, feel very validated right now because they're in that position of wanting to be the people that point, they see the obstacles, they see the challenges, they see the roadblocks that are coming, but they don't want to be the person perceived as the yes butter, so they keep their mouth shut. And and you have gone very far by presenting those to people. And you know, my I just want to say my advice to all of them out there is just just work on the style in a way that connects with the person on the other side, and make sure. And you know, I I tend to um, I don't know if you do this too, Richard, but I tend to because I'm so declarative in how I talk. I tend to say to people, Hey, listen, I have an Israeli background. I tend to be very declarative when I talk. I am really open to your questions. Half of what I'm saying really is a question. I just don't know how to bring my voice up in that way that makes it sound like a question. So please challenge me. I'm not saying this because I I think it's all this. And I have to preface people like what my, because it's hard for me to change that, but I can at least let them know this is where I'm coming from. And then they seem to be more open and more um, collaborative when I do that. Yep. Uh, I, I also realize the importance of body language 
there, there was one meeting I had with a marketing manager and we, we hadn't developed a rapport yet. And the meeting was a little bit tense. So I had the presence of mind to experiment. So I, I put down my pencil, I leaned back, crossed my legs, and he relaxed. So it was like, wow, this is kind of cool. <laughs> You're like, look at this. You know what, though? Body language matters. I think it even matters on virtual meetings, too. Like, you can tell, yep. I, you know, you can't see us if you're listening to this. If you see us on YouTube later, see, but like you can tell if someone's slumped over or not paying attention, or you know, it actually comes through on video too. So I, I hope everybody out there is before we move on is really listening to this conversation because what Rich and I are really talking about is how do you get buy-in for your ideas and how do you become a team player that people really want to lean on and pay attention to and have a strong voice. And you know, that that kind of being seen as a yes butter is a huge obstacle for a lot of people. And hopefully we shed some light on how to think about that, but also it's incredibly valuable. So if you're the other person who's expecting everyone to be a yes and person, shame on you because you're missing this opportunity to see things from a different perspective that you're not seeing. But I think, don't you think it's so easy to fall into that? You've seen it in meetings, I'm sure. Oh my gosh, yes. Fall into that, like, well, everybody has to be a yes and or, so then we all jump on board to the idea and the worst idea goes forward. Oh, yeah, and and I remember when I, I think of an idea is people who I go to naturally are the people who think like I do. Of course. And then I had to realize, like, stop that. <laughs> <laughs> not really, really getting anybody to help you make it better. Uh, I have a very good friend who is not in my field at all. She does grants and contracts at a healthcare system. But I love, she's one of the first people I call to run an idea by because the first thing she does is like start to dig into, well, how are you going to do that? Well, what about that? Well, you know, what are you going to do about that? And at first I was annoyed with her. I was like, could you just listen to my idea? But, but over time, what I realized is she helped me think through the idea in a way that I could not do on my own or with other people like me. I needed, I needed that difference in thinking. So I'm so with you on that. I, I, I can understand that early on in the relationship with, with my wife, uh, of course, I would throw out things that needed to be done to make that idea happen. And she said, I, I just want you to dream with me right now. <laughs> I was like, okay, got it. But you know what? What a what an awesome like black diamond level communication right there. Like, here's what I need from you right now. I'm not saying we can't do it later, but I'm saying right now, I just want to play. And then later we can dig in. Right. Like that's great on her part too. I'm gonna use that too. Thank tell your wife, thank you. <laughs> I will. Yeah. You're listening to Conversations with Everyday Innovators on With Tamara Gondor Podcast. Let's take a moment to thank our generous partners that make this possible. I want to take a moment to talk about my friends at Howdy Puppy. Dogs experience all the same problems as humans when it comes to joint pain, anxiety, digestion, and arthritis. A great way to help our four-legged family members with these ailments is with CBD-infused pet treats. Who doesn't like treats? As you longtime listeners know, my Mastiff, Zoe, is part of my family, but is getting older and has some anxiety issues when strangers come around. Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats has totally changed her disposition, and I know she feels like her young, energetic, confident self when she gets Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats. There are many CBD-infused dog treats on the market, but the truth is that many of them are overpriced and ineffective. We've looked at dozens of CBD dog treats and found most of them disappointing. 
Howdy Puppy is among the best brands in the CBD pet business. They deliver consistent quality and their treats look and taste amazing, according to our dogs, of course. The company makes CBD dog treats in three flavors, steak, bacon, and cheese rolls. All of Howdy Puppy CBD treats contain natural ingredients, including high-quality full-spectrum hemp oil, all sourced and made in the USA. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in Howdy Puppy, but before I put my name on the company, I had an independent lab in Denver, Colorado, verify the quality and consistency of their treats. They are truly as advertised. Go online today at howdypuppy.com, link will also be in the show notes, and use promo code TAMARA, T-A-M-A-R-A, that's me, to get 20% off the absolute best CBD dog treats on the market. You will not be disappointed. Howdypuppy.com, promo code TAMARA. Don't let them suffer needlessly. Let them enjoy life too. Let, let's flip it. So we talked a little bit about challenge. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, before that, um, was wondering how close are imaginative and experiential? Because going through it, I would have guessed that I was experiential would have been my second one versus imaginative. So they're, they're, very, they're all very distinct. Um, the imaginative, like I said, is more about the novel, the playing in the gaps, right? Like in the gray area, like you said, just like you said about yourself experiential is more innovation in motion. So let me give you an example. I think that's the best way to kind of explain it because I'm experiential risk taker. So it's not that I can't come up with something new, but for me to innovate, I have to put things in motion. So here's a small example, Rachel, that that I think you'll appreciate because we've worked together in the past. Uh, I have a team and I'd say to my team, this happened a while ago, um, hey, I need this PowerPoint. Like their job is to make my presentations look beautiful. So what I started doing is like telling them, I think this is what I need and how to lay it out and blah, blah, blah. And no matter what, when they brought me something back, I didn't like it. I was disappointed. It didn't fit what I needed. But the real issue wasn't them. It was me. For me to think through and to innovate and be creative, I needed to build the prototype of my presentation because that's how I think. I think while building. So yeah, so that's the experiential. It's not that someone who's imaginative can't be prone to action by any means. Like some, that's a different personality trait. Like you're either prone to action or you're not, but experiential is innovation in motion and imaginative is creating stuff that doesn't yet exist. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. And if you have an experiential dormant, it tends to just be because you want a little more data before moving where for experientials, the data is in the doing. Yeah. Yeah. My, 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 did, that make, did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thanks. And, and my dormant is futuristic. Ah, yeah. So that's interestingly, that's so if you're futuristic, it just means you want a little more grounding before you go, before you innovate, right? For you just, just thinking about tomorrow, which is interesting, right? Because that's the whole like, let's figure out the obstacles and the roadblocks and the, yeah, interesting. Oh, I love that conversation. I love it when it all comes together. Yes. Um, interestingly, though, Richard, imaginatives and experientials do a really good job supporting each other. Because imaginatives are like, what's new, what's novel, and the experience is like, let me take that and put it into action and see what I see. So maybe that explains why we worked together for so many years. Who knows? Right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe at the end of the podcast, we'll share our story about the guy with the dentist <laughs> in the basement and the windowless van. 
<laughs> I hope we'll get yeah. to that. This is about you. Maybe we'll get we'll get to that story at the end because it was just so fun. It was one of those moments um, that I'll never forget. Yeah. So let's flip it. We talked about challenge. Now my question for you is: What's a win or something that you're proud of? Uh, I, I I've had a couple of them that that stick out. One was when I was at Gardetto's when it was a family-owned company, that uh, snack mix company. We needed to change our packaging, both the, the structure and the design. We used to be in a bag that had a window on it, and so 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 you could see the the, the product. What we found out was, of all the things that could affect shelf life, it was light. So then we had to put it into more of a foil type bag, like Doritos and Cheetos, which then led to also a, a package redesign. So I led that and just got a ton of experience um, and doing it and learning as I was going. The other one was when I was in Shopper Insights, I had the opportunity to lead a team of multi manufacturers that were working with a larger retailer to redesign its grocery store. Wow. So there were a total of nine companies and I led the project and we worked collaboratively bringing our, our shared insights on, on the categories and worked with the senior leaders of the retailer to figure out what would be the best design. And this could have gone the way of, let's say I go into your kitchen and I decide to rearrange your cupboards because I think it's a better way. But because it was based on what the category buyers and what the shoppers wanted, when we changed the location of 85% of the categories in the store and changed the, the space, either made it larger or smaller, of half the categories, sales increased 4%, which is huge in grocery where it's razor thin margins. Hey, I have a couple of questions on both of those because they're great examples. I want to go back to the snack and then I want to go to the grocery store because that is, and, and it's a little funny because just the other day I was talking to someone, I was in their kitchen helping them cook and I couldn't find anything. And I was like, if this were my kitchen, it would be designed totally differently. But to your point, that doesn't mean it's going to work. It just means that I have a different <laughs> right. like frame in my head than that other person, right? It works, it works for them. Like made no sense to me. So my question on the snack bag is, so you, you I'm assuming the window was there to show the quality of the product, exactly. unlike a Cheeto, no offense to Cheetos, but right, you know what you're getting. You're not buying it for a high quality product that looks and or tastes. People like it, but not in that same way. When you removed that, right, you that, so you needed to remove that for shelf life because that you can't throw away product either. Yep. But that creates another problem, doesn't it? Uh, Absolutely. Well, now we have to, sh- right, now we have to show our quality and what what's in the bag without showing it. So how did you think about overcoming that? And I just want to say for listeners, I want you to be thinking about what is a solution that you've created that maybe caused another problem down the road, because that's typically what happens. What we did is we, on the bottom of the package, we had the photography of the product that looked like it would look like if the bottom of the bag had a window. So it was the snack mix piled together and it wasn't enlarged to show detail. It looked like the actual product and it was good photography. So it was a good representation. And uh, of course, we did the, the necessary research with the, the users of the product to, uh, to see if they, they would be confused and accept the package and all of that. And it, it worked and it was a successful total repackaging. That's a great example of, again, like you've got to solve one problem that you have to solve, but it causes a different problem that you got to solve too. And I think sometimes we get too myopic and we focus on the one thing we're solving and then we forget, oh wait, we've created a whole nother problem 
over here. And I think we see that in consumer packaged goods a lot where they solved for one and then they left us hanging, yes. you know, somewhere else. Um, I want to ask you about the grocery thing, because obviously I lit up when you said you redesigned a grocery and, you know, for those not in the consumer packaged good world and consumer packaged goods, by the way, for those not in that world, that's like all the products you buy on the shelf. Think of it that way. And anything you buy at Target, Walmart, the grocery store, like all that stuff. And but redesigning something that people are is part of people's habit and ingrained is a pretty big deal. So if you can share it, I'm curious why they wanted to redesign it and what you learned along the way during that process. Um, they they realized that where the growth was currently was in the perimeter of the store. So with the the produce and the um, fresh meat and that. But what you also they knew was that it's the center store that pays for all of the spoilage that happens in the perimeter. So with center store sales declining and going toward the perimeter, because then people wanted more more, more of the, the fresh food, they knew they had to think differently and figure out how can they grow that that center store. So they needed to grow what people wanted to buy without losing the thing that covered Correct. the spoilage. Yes, you know, and, and still accounted for more of the volume. What did you personally, and maybe it's in either of those experiences, but they're both great examples of really having to be innovative to find the solutions. What did you learn personally going through those processes? Uh, it, it's really where the, the fluid came into practice. It was the, the very first meeting when we all got together. You know, I, I had this plan about what would happen for the meeting. Like 15 minutes in, realized that, nope. <laughs> This isn't going to Tearing work. Tearing it up. <laughs> yeah, and pretty much that happened for every single meeting that it was, all right, this is the way we're going to go down that path. Oh, so a little more flexibility in it mm -hmm. as you learn. Well, and I think with, pro with projects like that, and I think a lot of us have been in these situations, as our plan is really great and the process needs to be really good to uncover the insights and... As you learn, you have no choice but to change. I mean, if you stayed the same, then what's the point of all the learning, yeah. right? What what also helped is we all had a shared goal. Uh, we wanted to make this work and to grow sales. All of us participated in multiple categories. Um, Gender Mills was in 23. And we knew in some categories, we would gain space. In some categories, we would lose. But net, net, it would be okay. And everybody approached it that way instead of digging in the heels and thinking it's all about me and what's best for my categories, my brands, that we, 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 we all work together for the shared common goal. So, 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 so knowing what that, that end goal is and have everybody aligned uh, really works. I think you might have just answered my question a little bit, but I wanted to ask you that how do you think you get a team to do that? Because I think that's actually what you said is actually really hard. And a key to success for a lot of people is figuring out how to align everybody to a shared goal without the territory, without the stake in the ground, without the like me first. And, and you know, you have to make sure your own interests are, are being served, but that's a pretty big deal. So if upon reflection, like, what do you think were the keys to even making that happen? Um, I think there was a lot of work done behind the scenes going into the project and who the vendors were, the manufacturers were that were working on the project. So the, the retailer didn't pick the partners that 
would not play well with others in the same snap box. Also, great advice, I think, and a great reminder to me about putting in the work before the actual meeting. That's where that that's where the work actually happens. I think sometimes we go into our meeting or our conversation with someone we're trying to get a you know buy-in for whatever, and we think that's the meeting where the work happens, and we've had no touch points and no effort and investment prior. And I, I think what, what I hear you saying is, is like, it's all the front end stuff that happened before we even got to the table. And wow, what a great reminder for all of us who are trying to get move something, anything forward to like put in the work before the real meetings happen, whatever those meetings are. Right. And it was the work done by the, the senior leaders. So they, they truly did their job of removing obstacles so the team could perform. So I, I, I did my own prep work for, for my role. But I wasn't aware of everything that was going on behind the scenes. Well, I hope some people out there are listening to that because there's probably people in leadership roles who maybe are either ignoring the obstacles, hoping they'll go away, or actually even putting some obstacles in place. So your job is to remove them. Remember that. Right. Not, um, and, I wanna, and certainly not create them. Yeah. Well, some do. <laughs> I know. Unfortunate. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> um, what, as a fluid imaginative, what advice do you have for other everyday innovators of all different types who are who are looking to do what you've done? I think, you know, build a career, innovate, think differently, and hopefully maybe find a wave to catch like you have that kind of keeps them in the forefront. Right. Um, particularly for those with fluid, um, you have to bring others along for the ride. So you are used to bobbing and weaving and adapting and being agile, but other people don't like change. So you, you have to remember to pause and explain why there was the change and make sure that everybody is still on the same in the same boat, on the same bus, whichever analogy you, you, you want to use. I really like that advice. And I think it's so easy to discount people and go, well, they're not on board. Like they don't get it. But what I like about what you're saying is you're saying, hey, you got to take ownership. For the one who's man who is navigating the change and doing it, more easily, like you got to help other people along too. Don't you think that leads to more success than if you just get the ones on the bus or the boat who 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 are in the same position you're in? Yes, because because then you all have a shared vested interest and, and keep going to, toward the same goal. You know, it's interesting. I so I interviewed um, a gentleman the other day from um, Enrique Rubio from Hacking HR, and he said something similar about because you know human resources is such a traditional department, we'll just call it that. And, uh, but he was, I had asked him, like, how do you kind of similar thing? Like, how do you think about that? And he was saying, like, he feels like it's really his job to help other people get over their fear of change, whatever that, wherever that fear is coming from. And you're saying it now too. So that's two in a row where I feel like, oh, there's a, there's a really important nugget here, Richard, and what you're saying about, hey, recognize that other people are afraid or not as good at it. Maybe they want it, but they don't know how to do it. And you're over there with a little bit of this golden key, help people along. Right. You know, and you mentioned about being afraid and everybody is insecure or not confident about something or afraid of something. They probably aren't wearing it on their sleeve, um, but everybody does have something. You could accidentally step into it without knowing it. <laughs> You know, I, just on that, I'll tell you, when I get a really defensive response from someone um, about, and I'm in the business of innovation, so I, I see it a lot. And even with people who want the change, who are hiring me for the change, right, they are actually the first to kind of get their their feathers ruffled. And my first thought isn't like, how dare you? You don't get it. Why did you hire the, my company? Blah, 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 right? My first thought is, 
all right, what did I step in? Like, what is it? What's behind this that I need to uncover so I can help them move forward? Because I've hit something. I've hit it. So I've hit something. And that that's why you're so good at what you do. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of thinking in my head, Richard. There's a lot going on up here. <laughs> sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Uh, um, you know, and, and from the work that we did together in the, the ethnographies of with, withholding your judgment and filling in the blanks, you're going, wait a minute, what are they they thinking? You know, I'm just real quick, let me just bring up some stuff there because before I ask you the last question, Richard, because you and I used to do ethnographies and um, for those not in market research, that basically means we went into people's lives, their work and actually experienced it with them versus putting them in a conference room and asking them questions about it. So we did a lot of work um, going into people's homes and talking to them and then going shopping with them, basically, at like a CVS or Walgreens, right? So I'll never forget, well, there's two moments. And one was a woman who had maybe 150 teddy bears in her room. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. And just everywhere. And I remember when I first walked in, I was like, oh. and then like, but as we started talking to her, she was really interesting. And there was a reason they were there and had to do with the nonprofit and all this stuff. And then there was another gentleman who had some type of dental tooth thing in his basement mm -hmm. and then he a windowless van which we unsafely drove with him <laughs> in somewhere uh, i'm not sure that was our wisest move but i want to tell you what that work with you in particular because you and i really did go out and find some very we were interviewing some very interesting people it wasn't just let's find a family of four with a two-car garage like we interviewed some interesting people it taught me empathy in a way that i don't think i had going into that so let me just thank Thank you to you because that I think that research that we did really took a lot of the judgment out of my system. Hmm. Wow! Yeah, because we we saw some things, Richard. We <laughs> saw some things. Yes, <laughs> oh, I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. So, okay. So, my last question for you is more on the personal side. What's something we'd be surprised to learn about you? Uh, maybe not quite surprising, but it surprised me. So, a, a year ago, I chose to have elective, elective hernia surgery. And it was the first surgery that, that they ever had. I was one of the very few that gets a blood clot after that. Um, so, so I had a clot in one leg that went from my ankle to mid-thigh. Oh, that's not good. And it, it has taken a full year for me for my, to feel that my body is back to where it was before that. So it, it, it gave me a new appreciation and empathy for those who have had surgery. It, it, it takes a long time for your body to recover. And I, I, yeah. I, I'm guessing um, that childbirth is similar. I mean, that <laughs> your body is going through quite yes. a bit. That is not just like, okay, it's been a week. Let's go. Well, first of all, again, I just want to say thank you for sharing that because I feel very validated. I had a surgery a couple of years ago that took me way longer to, I thought I would bounce right back because I mean, why wouldn't I? But, but that's not at all what happens. And uh, you're right. Like I, I suddenly, I lost the whole, like, just, like you're just feeling sorry for yourself. Just go out and do that five mile run. What are you doing? Like, just go. I lost that. So I, I'm glad that you share that because I, I've been through a similar experience. I think a lot of people have, and you, you do gain a new respect for like what the body has to go through to recover from anything really. So that's good. Hey, Richard, this has been great. A lot of insights. And, you know, it's, as I'm just like sitting here noodling on it, as we're talking, it just, the kind of the theme of empathy and connection and a little bit of accountability of like, Hey, it's your job to figure to like connect with these people and to figure it out. I think when 
the people on the other side of the table become they, meaning they don't get it, right? They don't see it. That's where you lose. And I hear you saying the opposite. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Congratulations. By listening to this podcast, you took another step towards becoming an everyday innovator. To leap forward, visit www.gotolaunchstreet.com and take the Innovation Quotient Edge Assessment to discover your unique everyday innovator style and access the Everyday Innovator Digital Magazine for the top tools, insights, and inspiration at your fingertips 24-7. Tomorrow, we'll be back with another Everyday Innovator conversation soon. In the meantime, if you got a nugget of value out of this podcast, let Tamara know by leaving a five-star review and comment. Your review equals more guests, more listens, bigger impact. Until next time.